disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. eons and eons of concentrated energy. If we release all that oil, all that coal, if we burn it and put that carbon back into the atmosphere, we will be recreating the atmosphere that we would have had 300 million years ago. And that was not a very good atmosphere for us to live in. In March, the U.S. crossed the 1 million mark for solar installations in spite of plummeting oil prices. Amazingly, 90% of these systems were put in over the last 10 years. Sunny side up. It's solar power's big moment. Full disclosure, stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson. Since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwoods and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me in studio, a pair of uh, children of the sun, as it were, Burt Green, founder of Solar Mill, an off-grid manufacturing company that produces consumer goods strictly utilizing the sun's good power. Sitting on Burt's lap is Jackson, his Maltese. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? And Will Reisinger, attorney at Green Herlocker, who specializes in energy and regulatory work, especially with regards to commercial solar. And I have to say that I only met you at a pizza place yesterday here, Superstars Locally, and I overheard a conversation and I booked you on my fine show. How's that for resourcefulness. It was it was a very serendipitous meeting. And so we, we give a, a little shout out to Superstars Pizza in the West End. Yeah, Superstars, we're retroactively going to ask you to sponsor this. And maybe there'll be a tie-in with Bert's solar mill. He can. I, I saw <laughs> Bert this week talk about, you know, you're nothing if not resourceful. You prepared pizza on your solar oven. Like, tell us what you do, kid. Tell us what you're all about. Tell us what's going on. Well, I was I was reheating the pizza in all fairness there, but uh, I have used it to cook a few meals. I have, it's kind of a toy right now, but I think it's going to be something bigger in the future. In addition to the more high-tech projects that we're doing, we do have a giant magnifying glass that we've been using for experiments and occasional cooking. Step back from all this, in addition to what I explained, what is Solar Mill? Solar Mill is an off-grid manufacturing company. Uh, off-grid meaning that we're not grid-tied, we're not using any fossil fuels. We generate our own electricity with solar panels on the roof of our shop, and we use that to run typical shop machinery like table saws and planers and routers and stuff like that. And we make consumer goods like furniture and cutting boards and cell phone cases and all kinds of housewares and home decor for a living. Uh, before you go any further, do you believe in toilet paper? Yes. So it's not like you're living an aesthetics life and, uh, you know, dispensing with all of these great things. Yeah, just... I still have a cell phone. I still use the Internet. It's not that I'm opposed to technology. In fact, I think technology is is a wonderful enabler as long as we combine it with a renewable source of energy to power it, you know. So use all the technology you want, but let's just move away from fossil fuels. Uh, tell us about that, Will. What is it? What makes this fossil boom? And I mean qualitatively, and their, their numbers backing it up, too, as I mentioned. Um you're seeing solar panels everywhere. You drive on the I-195 here, and uh, increasingly companies have reached this calculus, even with oil not at $150 a barrel. Heck, it's closer to $35 a barrel now. Um, prices of solar, the payback period, where interest rates are, the, the, the perfect storm has happened kind of to give solar its moment in spite of – uh, what used to be thought of as it cannot be competitive if fossil fuel prices collapse. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think calling it a perfect storm is the right way to put it because you've got policy changes 
both at the federal level and the state level, that are being combined with economic factors. So the price of solar, the installed cost of solar, and Bert can probably talk about this better than I can, but the installed cost of solar has dropped like a rock in the last five years, and we're down close to, I think, $3 a watt installed, which is an incredible drop from where we were just a few years ago. And then you've got states around the country, over 30 states have a renewable portfolio standard of some kind that requires utilities to purchase a certain amount of their power from renewable sources like solar. And then you've got the federal investment tax credit, which is another incentive for businesses and individuals to uh, install particularly solar energy. So you got a lot of factors coming together that makes it a really exciting time to be in the energy business. Really, the the big meaning of life question that I have is when you strip away all federal tax subsidies and feed-in tariffs and you know, depreciation credits and, you know, Department of Energy credits, whatever you want to call them. At its very base level, uh, why is solar now so competitive with, let's say, a blended basket of fossil fuels? You look at um, whether you're talking about Dominion or Florida Power and Light or Con Ed, whatever they're burning. It could be low sulfur coal, high sulfur coal, increasingly natural gas because we're sitting on oceans of it here in the United States. Just on the market forces alone, is solar competitive on its own? Uh, it It is competitive on its own, and I don't think you can really separate the policy from the economics because regulations at the federal and state level affect the economics and affect the, the comparative cost of renewable energy versus other uh, sources of energy. So natural gas, for example, is still a fossil fuel-emitting source. So while it emits less CO2 than coal, it's still emitting CO2 and it's still going to be a disfavored resource going forward, especially if we have the uh, federal clean power plan going into effect in the next few years. Is there a tipping point number in your head where the efficiency or price of solar would kind of make it inevitable that this becomes a technology of choice? If you could de-jargon that for our listeners, if it's a kilowatt hour number or if it's a total price of lighting up a, you know, a house for the month with financing, walk us through that. Well, I think if I'm a, a residential <clears throat> customer, before I want to put solar panels on my roof and make that investment, I think I probably want the payback period to be 10 years or so, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. If it's going to be a 20 or 30 year payback period, maybe I don't want to make that big investment because it is a big upfront cost. But the the price per watt of solar energy installed is down now near $3 a watt, which if you had told me five years ago that we were going to be at that level, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have believed you. I don't How think... does $3 a watt compare to, say, a natural gas-fired large-scale utility yeah. price? Well, it's... Again, I'm, not it's yeah. not apples to apples yeah, it's necessarily. Yeah, it's kind of apples and oranges because if you're buying energy from the utility, you're paying for all the other stuff, the distribution charges, the transmission charges, all the other factors that go into the utilities rate. But, I mean, there's no doubt that the the price, the actual technology has advanced so much that it's now close to being cost competitive, even if you take away all these subsidies and policies that are also helping solar. And Bert Green, you opted out of this grid proposition altogether. You can understand the utilities that they're saying, listen, we've spent untold billions and decades and decades maintaining and building 
not just the power plants, but the distribution grid, which is vexingly difficult. Some might remember the blackout. Yeah. They're in, out there in, in the rain. They're out there in the snow. I appreciate what they do. Um, but I, is it? Is there's almost this argument that you, as a citizen, just opting out of this, like they kind of like we don't necessarily need to do favors for you. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, I, I chose to do what I'm doing um, really just to kind of learn to work with the constraints of what I have available, not to really snub the system or, or to really, you know, stick it to Dominion. But it's also a, ver it's a version of cord cutting, too. Like yeah. if you think about cable, like people want to be off it. And you know, I, I know that the analogy might be a little tortured, but I want to get a la carte like Netflix and HBO mm -hmm. Go and do it on my time. I don't want to pay the cable company. And the cable company chafes at that because they have also this distribution grid and the upkeep and the massive capex that goes into it. Yours right now is really a novelty. It's really an example. You get a lot of press. You're really good about Instagramming and, and uh, Facebooking things like when you cook uh, pizza or biscuits or something on your oven out there. But the novelty thing seems to be on a commercial level you know, when you talk to some of your colleagues, bigger players in the community, there's a tipping point too for for big companies that are getting solar arrays on their roofs. Yeah, and we'll touched on the magic number. You know, you're you're asking for what's the how do you compare it? The only real way you can look at solar is as an investment and as an ROI. You know, so you have to look at it as you know how long is it going to take for you to break even, and then once you break even, and you know when you talk about an ROI of seven years. After seven years, the eighth year, the ninth year, the tenth year, you're now saving, if not making money. You know, so that's really the metric to look at. It is how long is your money going to be tied up before you start to make it back? And you know, I think we have reached that tipping point. We're on the other side of the hill at this point. Um, the big issue now with solar is it's only available in the middle of the day, and the majority of the energy that we use is when people come home in the evening and they start turning on their ovens and washing clothes and watching TV. So that's why um, there's been a big emphasis on storage technologies, and people are you know, looking for the next big breakthrough. Um, I, I don't think that there's going to be a, a major breakthrough at this point. I think it's going to just be continue to be incremental gains from here out. Walk me through this on a frustrating day. Will both of you, I mean, jump ball. Uh, it's scorchingly hot outside. I might have the windows in my car tinted to the legal limit. Uh, the good sun, the good Lord, uh, Mother Nature, whatever the heck you want to call it, the, the cosmic riddle Gaia. is just showering my yeah. car with heat and it's just going to waste because then I, I turn the ignition and, you know, the pistons fire and we're using fossil fuels. And I'm wondering to what extent could I have harvested that, um, that then, you know, the AC after five minutes of it, finally I'm comfortable. Could that have lit something? Could that have lit up like an air conditioning thing? What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there seems to be this constant riddle, as Elon Musk said when he launched his... Power Pack product that you have this enormous generator, the biggest generator known to man out there in the sky, kind of just baiting you into use me. Are you man enough yeah. to kind of harness my energy and figure out a way to distribute it to the masses? Yeah. And I, I think we're getting there. I think we're making exponential progress every year in terms of actual megawatts installed in the US and around the world. I think every year it's an incredible amount of growth. Uh, I think last year, for example, there was more, and I could be wrong about this, but there was more solar energy installed than any other type of energy resource, mm -hmm. which is pretty incredible. Uh, and as we have more and more people like Bert going off the grid, uh, that's only going to continue. I just want to say what he's doing is really incredible because he's totally cut the cord completely. He doesn't have a backup source of power from the utility in the event that the sun's not shining or at night, he's relying on batteries for that 
backup power, whereas most people that have solar panels on their house, they still have that utility backup source. So if the sun's not shining or if they're having to use a lot of energy, they've got that source of energy from the utility as a backup. But what he's doing is, like you said, is, is novel and it's impressive. Now, solar, does it kind of follow the semiconductor Moore's Law kind of capacity gains versus cost matrix? No, not exactly. Um, it's on a slightly slower curve than that. That's that's basically the Moore's Law is the density of transistors, like doubles every so many numbers of years. Um, it is following basic economics of scale, though. And as we continue to scale up production, it is getting uh, cheaper and cheaper. Um, I think we're going to get to a certain point to where it's not really the hardware. It's really just the, the labor and the skill of the installation and just the, the general maintenance and distribution of it. You know, So that's, that's becoming a, a less significant portion of the total cost is the actual panels themselves. In fact, you look at my installation, my panels themselves cost a, a few thousand dollars. But my inverter, which converts the the DC energy back into AC to use for my machinery, you know, basically the hardware part of it cost half as much as the panels. Mm -hmm. You know, so I mean, there's that the panels have gone down so much in price. It's really all the other technology that is able to convert it and transform it and transmit it and you know make it usable is is now becoming a larger portion of the cost. Now, Bert, you must be a fascinating person to approach at cocktail parties. Terribly boring. Happy hours. I, I would I would be talking your head off, actually. You know, any any homeowner, any person who's thinking, yeah, what is the payback like? What do you see on a typical uh, you know, four bedroom, single family house with a roof and getting the median amount of sunshine in central Virginia? This seems to increasingly be talked about. I mean, last week I took a drive with a, a friend up to New York State. He installs heating and cooling here. And we're talking about the possibility of pivoting his business into solar installations because of everything that he sees on this nine-hour drive, especially on the commercial and B2B level. I would love to hear the kind of things that you get accosted and, and talked to about or the talking points. Yeah, well, the biggest is people are like asking what kind of solar they should get for their house, you know, and they're they're curious about my system and how mine works. And I have to remind them the way that I set mine up, the way that I chose to be off grid is not what I would recommend for most people. For most people, I would recommend getting what is a grid tied or grid interactive system, which is the most common. I think 95% of all the systems out there are grid tied, where you have solar panels on the roof of your house, but you're still connected to the electrical grid. And when it's sunny, the solar spins your meter backwards and you basically save up some energy. And then when the sun goes down, you then take that balance back from the grid, you know? So that's that's called grid tide or net metering. Yeah. Um, that's the best, most economic solution for most people because you get 100% of what you can harvest you're able to put into electricity. My system's a lot more challenging because when my batteries are full, I have nowhere to store it. And when my batteries are empty, I don't have a backup. But I chose to do that because I wanted to work within the constraints of what I have available. And I also wanted to be able to say with, with authenticity that when I make a product that it's 100% solar, not a blend of 50% solar, 50% grid at 5 o'clock in the afternoon or 100% carbon at 8 o'clock at night, you know, I want to be able to say that when, regardless of when I made it, that it was you know, clean, 100% solar powered. So there's a philosophical reason why I tried, why I decided to be off grid, but I don't recommend that for everyone. Well, philosophical, let's get Will into what he said. Let's get into some Wonka stand here. Um, if you're, you have an abundance of solar power, I'm thinking if I, if I paid for the arrays on my roof, why should it just at most give me a zero 
energy bill? Why can't I sell it in theory and in practice back to everybody on my block? I mean, it's fungible at that point. You don't care. There's no difference, I think, in the quality. A base load aside, suppose theoretically if the sun was burning 24 hours a day and it was just giving your neighbors a constant amount of, of power, um, there's no difference in the, the quality of that versus fossil fuel generated power. So why isn't that allowed? I would feel like that would give um, homeowners an enormous incentive to do it, that you might actually profit from this. You're right. And that touches on a couple things. Uh, and let me, let me just start by saying, as Bert said, that the typical way that people do this is through a, what's called net metering. So mm -hmm. for example, I, I put solar panels on my house and I might generate only 750 kilowatt hours a month, but I might use a thousand kilowatt hours a month. So that difference, I have to pay the utility for that 250 kilowatt hours a month difference. And that's the that's the way that people normally do it. And I'm also required to pay some standard charges to the utility, which is going to, you know, in theory, compensate the utility for the cost that they incur to maintain. And let's let, let's let the utility be nameless. Here, you're stuck with like a 27-page packet to fill out if you want to do this in the first place. Yeah. Well, that's why you call the uh, lawyers at Green Herlocker. Who oh, will, who plug! Will, <laughs> Green Herlocker! You can will, find them at greenherlocker.com. Who will we'll walk you through this process and make it as painless as we can. But uh, this but is not a solicitation for But that's legal the, that's the typical way that um, people do that if they want to uh, install solar on their on their properties. Now, the question of should a business or an individual be able to sell that power to other people, that gets into a kind of controversial political question in Virginia right now. And across the country, actually. Across no the country. utility, no utility out there that has been spending decades and in their defense. It's like the cable company again. You want to go off the grid. I mean, we're not going to necessarily do any favors for you. It's great. Um, you know, especially you're doing, you're running an AC over the summer, and you're helping us out marginally. But we still expect you, almost as a as a exactly as a citizen, to do your part to upkeep the grid, which is a public good. Yeah, and exactly, and it makes sense from the utility's perspective. I understand what they're saying. You know, they're they're saying we've got an obligation to serve anybody who moves into our service territory, and we've got an obligation to maintain the grid for those people. So we can't have people just. Uh, selectively using the grid but not paying for it. So that's the utilities argument. And I understand that. But at the same time, I think we need to move, we need to have some sort of compromise where we can have uh, some third-party purchase option. So if you want, if I as a homeowner want to purchase exclusively solar energy and Dominion doesn't offer that for me, there, there ought to be a way for me to do that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking with uh, Children of the Sun today. Uh, Bert Green, founder of Solar Mill, and Will Reisinger, an attorney at Green Harlocker who specializes in uh, solar, particularly where commercial solar is concerned. Uh, Will, um, actually, Bert, you know, you'd mentioned this earlier on storage technology. It's the mm -hmm. bottleneck right now. If you could, you know, you had a really hot day, really sunny day, the sun out in full blast, and reliably store this stuff and kind of bank it. It's like your unused minutes on a wireless plan. It could make this a lot more attractive. And that's where Tesla, which is now one of the most admired companies in the in the country, both with its electric car, which is not looked at as a novelty. It's looked at as an aspirational luxury car that literally broke Consumer Reports' ranking system. I mean, it was that amazing. Now he bought SolarCity, a cousin company, and he says that the future is in the full solar house, right? You have 
your solar car in the garage plugged into a system that's harvesting solar power, and you have this massive, gorgeous battery pack on the wall that's uh, keeping those uh, gorgeous electrons for you to use whenever you want. Elon Musk is a genius and a visionary. I'm just going to say that right off the bat. He's probably one of my top five most admired people. I think that he has looked at the big picture of where we are and where we're headed as a society and not just America because we have to stop thinking about what's happening in our country. We need to start thinking globally and, and how we use our energy and what our relationship is with the environment. And he sees that there are only uh, a few true solutions out there. And we've got to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. We are destroying the planet. We just said the 14th monthly record for global highs. Um, there was a report that just came out uh, last week that that's showing not just that we're setting these these global average records, but all the other things that you would expect to go with it: rising sea levels, rising CO2 levels. Like everything's topping off the charts, and I think it's a wake up call. We need to we need to basically put the same amount of effort that we put into the moon race into a renewable race. Or the Manhattan Project. Or, or the Manhattan the Project. If we put that level of intensity and focus, we could do this in 10 years. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that there are powers that be that have vested interests in extracting every possible resource they can um, at the highest possible value. But I think that it is a call for citizens to stop up and, and take personal ownership of their energy. And if, if the power companies are kind of lagging in their investment, I think that people need to go ahead and make the investment themselves and put it on their roofs and put it in their yards and you know, change their lifestyles, change the way we eat. You know, it's the, the energy picture is, is so much more than just what we use for our air conditioners and our Xboxes and everything else. I mean, um, I, I hear time and time again that actually our choices of food and the energy, I mean, we don't think about it, but the energy that goes into making a pound of beef or, you know, a pound of chicken versus a pound of soy or a pound of corn, the energy that goes into making the food really vastly outweighs most of the energy. Even the water use. consumption and the energy water, that go, yeah. will go into desalination and yeah. various other things that have to go into the inputs. And I'm, I'm not a vegan. Um, I have a lot of friends that are vegans and I admire what they're doing. I am not a hardcore vegan. I'm, I'm an omnivore, but we have to realize that we're eating our diet is so unbalanced and it's never been this way if you go back to the way that we ate in america just 100 years ago you know meat was a much smaller portion of the diet you know so it's not even about saying you have to go vegetarian but if you look at our meals now it's just so easy just to have like a three-piece chicken dinner with no vegetables nothing on the side i mean you know it's um, i don't mean to get too far off the solar task but if we're talking about energy and we're talking about fossil fuels you know we really have to look at our lifestyles our behaviors our entire relationship with the environment. It has to be much bigger than just, you know, am I going to save 17 cents on my electric bill this month? It has to be a lot bigger perspective than that. When you look at the vast carbon footprint across the planet, obviously cars are a big part of it. Uh, obviously methane belching animals uh, in agriculture are a huge part of it, but utilities are an enormous part of it. I mean, and, and other, other ex, you know, they're called externalities, which I think is almost euphemistic. It's almost, uh, you know, whitewashing the expression like, Okay, you have to live with methyl mercury in your Atlantic tuna because there are still high sulfur burning factories in the Midwest. Um, so yeah, I am I am tempted to look at this in terms of an enormous balance. If will someone were to look at the entire fully loaded cost, um, externality costs, opportunity costs, environmental costs, health costs of fossil fuel energy. Let's just say the the standard, which has been let's say low sulfur coal. These technologies would have been at parity a long time ago. If you that would have apple to appled solar with coal, absolutely. And uh, you know, externality is just a big word that you know I've never fully understood. But 
But you're right. There are, there are costs for using fossil fuels that are not accounted for in the price of those fossil fuels. And if, you, if the cost was accounted for in the price of using fossil fuels, we'd probably be at parity now. It probably would have been a parity a long time ago. So if so we- So let's, let's extend this to a philosophical conversation. Should we tax carbon? Should we charge people for carbon? If that should be your price of admission to the whole game of, of power generation and your footprint- yeah. Well, you know, I don't I'm not a I'm not an economist, but there are a lot of conservative economists who say that the carbon tax is the is the best way to go, the most purely economical way to reduce carbon emissions because you're actually uh forcing people to pay the true cost of using fossil fuels. Uh another way to go about it is an actual renewable portfolio standard that has some teeth and that means something and so that means that Utilities such as Dominion has to procure a certain percentage of its power from renewable energy sources as opposed to what we have now in Virginia, which is a voluntary standard that really has no teeth to it. So you, you got It doesn't have teeth deliberately because utilities, they are very fierce lobbyists. And as you know, they hire – there's a revolving door in Congress. I know I'm taking you off the reservation here. But there's a reason why this stuff doesn't happen. Sure. Even though it is eminently logical, aside from partisanship, whether or not you believe in global warming, um, certain things – again, it goes back to the initial riddle. If the sun is just giving it to you out there, are you smart enough? Are you man enough to take it? You know, and you look at what's going on in North Carolina, which North Carolina has made a lot of news lately for some pretty controversial legislation from their conservative legislature and conservative governor, but they have uh, outpaced almost ev every other state in the mid-Atlantic in terms of solar development. They've got thousands of megawatts of installed solar in North Carolina, whereas we in Virginia probably have less than 50. And they've got all this. We're 39th in the nation. Are we 39th? We're 39th. Not well, last. you can also buy a pack of Marlboros here for $3.90. Plug, shameless plug. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those two are actually inextricably linked. There's lobbying involved in both of those, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, but they've, <laughs> they've decided, uh, based on economics, they've decided that the policy to promote solar makes sense in North Carolina. So they've got a renewable portfolio standard with some teeth, and they've got a state investment tax credit that promotes solar. And they've also got some other policies that require the utilities to buy solar at a favorable price. And that's that's turned out to be good for solar development and good for uh, business in North Carolina. So policy can play a huge role. But here's what blows my mind, having said that. And, and Bert, in spite of this balkanized hodgepodge of some states that are strong, other states that are feckless, toothless, you know, California versus North Carolina versus Virginia versus Kentucky versus Arkansas, you're seeing solar have a huge moment. The number of installations, I mean, it's kind of shattering records, I think in large part because what China, for one, is a manufacturing machine. And China is voraciously, I mean, they're known to add one coal power plant a week on average, but the economy is cooling. And they also know that they're untenable situations. If you go into Beijing or Shanghai on certain days, the air quality index is so horrific that at the same time, they also have to be the biggest investor in, in clean tech in the world as well. So, And they have the, 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 the whole you know, manufacturing furnace running 24-7 and churning out a glut of, of solar panels. So again, it goes back to the perfect storm thing. You're seeing regardless, in spite of regulatory help not being there in full, solar is having a huge bull market right now. 
It is. Well, we talked earlier about how gas prices are so low right now, and I think most You're people, talking natural gas, right? Well, I'm talking about oh, gasoline for barrels, car. barrels for uh, you know sweet crude. Oh, oil, oil standard, prices, sure. You know, Thirty-five dollars a barrel. Um, I think most consumers and certainly most policymakers know that that's that's a facade. That the only reason that it's being priced that low right now is because OPEC is trying to squeeze out the shale production in North America. You know, so we have these these North American. Uh, oil refineries that were starting to come online last year and two years ago. And right as they started to spool up operations, OPEC just dropped the bottom out of the market and said, no, you don't. You know, because for the the North American shale, it's not profitable unless it's $40, $45 a barrel. You know, so if you have, you just hold on to it. You don't produce something at a loss, you know. So every time that they go to open the tap in North America, OPEC's going to come back and say, we're undercut you, you know, so don't think about it. So you kind of got this bidding war for for the lowest possible price. Meanwhile, you know, we talked about externalities. That is not the true value of what oil should be. You know, I can't put a number on it. But if you look at the fact of, you know, it's it's eons and eons of concentrated energy, it, it basically is like time traveling to a different climate at a different time. If we release all that oil, all that coal, if we burn it and put that carbon back into the atmosphere, we will be recreating the atmosphere that we would have had 300 million years ago. You know, And that was not a very good atmosphere for us to live in. That's not the environment that humans have adapted to. So you know, I think that we need to kind of realize that that, that is artificially cheap and that that's not really helping things. But back to the larger picture about um, solar kind of having its moment is I think most people realize they have a a longer term vision is they know that as cheap as it is right now, that that's that we're just being caught up in a bidding war and it might be benefiting the consumer temporarily, but most people realize it's going to go back up. And if they have a long term vision, if they're thinking 10 years, 20 years, they know it's not going to be $35 a barrel in five years. Right. You want to talk about a company at the clean tech, uh, a, a city, a municipality at the clean tech vanguard. Wait for it. Wait for it. San Francisco, of course it is. Uh, on April 19th, the city's board of supervisors voted unanimously to become the first major metropolitan area in the U.S. requiring that new buildings install solar photovoltaic panels on their roofs. So California statewide already mandates that new buildings with 10 floors or less designate at least 15% of their rooftop area to be ready for solar panel installation. That's where you know, you're getting a, a, a state... You know, Sacramento is more than nudging you to follow these good policies. I was raised in Miami and in Florida where, you know, that yes, there are awful storms in the summer and everything. But for most of the year, you have the sun kind of violently hitting up against buildings, hitting up against rooftops. You spend ungodly amounts of money and maintenance on an air-conditioned economy. And that's an area where you talk about Nevada or places sprawl in Scottsdale or Phoenix or Las Vegas that it just makes so much sense. And you wonder why the municipalities there aren't championing this more. I really don't know what to say about that. I know there's in a lot of in a lot of places, in a lot of states, there's pushback from the monopoly electric utilities. You know, they've got their monopoly on selling energy. They don't want any policy in place that could uh, cut into. But wait, here, time out. Here's the thing. We're told. I remember. I remember Con Ed when I lived in New York City on the hottest days of the summer when ACs were going full blast on that. You know stretch of Manhattan. They tell everybody to please shut down one elevator bank, use less. I would think they're vested to make sure that they don't see brownouts and blackouts and solar could only help them or individual people like Bert on a larger scale would help them. Well, you're right. Solar is solar is good. It's almost what we would call a, a peaking technology because solar produces the most 
energy when demand is traditionally highest, on the hottest days of the year, when air conditioners are are running at full blast, that's when solar is producing the most energy, obviously. So that's good. That's good for the utilities because the price of power on the interstate market is a lot more expensive on those during those times of really high demand. So solar is solar is good for utilities in that respect. But if if there are too many individual customers uh, that are buying less energy because they've got solar panels, or if there are too many people like Bert going off the grid entirely. It's too good. Then it's too good. Yeah. And it's too good. And if I'm a utility executive, that's when I get worried. If I start losing two, three percent of my energy sales to customer owned distributed generation, then you know, then that becomes a something I'm concerned about. It's also hard to balance, in all fairness to the utilities, um, when solar takes up a larger and larger portion of the portfolio at a given time of day, if if a cloud passes overhead, you still have all these loads running, but then all of a sudden your production dropped out, you know? So you have to have these uh, peaker plants and, you know, substations and, you know... What's a peaker plant? A peaker plant is a power plant that is designed to spool up quickly. Um, you know, like a nuclear plant takes days and days to reach full capacity. A gas plant can come online and reach capacity in 15 minutes. So you have to have on-demand um, sources, and that's another reason why natural gas, it's not just the fact that it's cleaner. Another reason natural gas is really kind of coming to the forefront for power utilities is that natural gas plants are inherently more responsive, and so it actually is a better fit for working with solar because a coal plant has has response time in the hours, you know, uh, 45 minutes or more for a coal plant to react. So if you have a weather system come through and it's a hot day and everyone's air conditioning, well, just because uh, a weather system comes through in, in 10, 15 minutes doesn't mean your air conditioner is going to turn off immediately. So you have all these really large loads. You have all the the demand that people would be doing outside of air conditioning, and all of a sudden, you know, the solar drops out and it goes to nothing. You know, so you have to be able to compensate for that, and that's why you need uh, more grid storage, uh, like batteries. Batteries are instantaneous; that's milliseconds. Uh, gas plants can be online in 10, 15 minutes. Hydroelectric is actually one of the best. You can turn hydroelectric on in 30, 40 seconds. So it, it is challenging for the utilities when you have larger and larger amounts of installed solar, and then you're trying to balance something that, like, you can't decide when you're producing solar or not, you know? It's it's based on when the sun hits you. But all the other sources we have, we can control. But it, control by, by law, by law, and to use the jargon, utilities have to have baseload power. They have to be able to provision you 24-7. Right. So that there are things that, that don't depend on the sun necessarily. They have to have feedstocks. That go in, be they. But there's an inefficiency here. Is like if you know that you have to supply that baseload demand, but then you have like this 30% of your portfolio is solar. Well, then do you just keep gas plants running at full capacity while you're making the solar just to be ready when the solar doesn't get there? Because that's not exactly efficient either. Very good point you bring up, and it brings me back to you mentioned Tesla, which is potentially the most disruptive company in all of clean tech right now. It's been a gangbusters performing stock. Elon Musk is a rock star. This came out of nowhere to have the most desired car. And now his power pack on the wall. Uh, Morgan Stanley, which is no shrinking violet on Wall Street, it's a major player, in 2014 put out a controversial report that said that the increasing viability of consumer solar paired with better battery technology that allows people to generate and store their own electricity could send a decades-old utility industry into a death spiral. So it tripled down on the idea that Tesla and home solar will disrupt 
utilities. I'm quoting the report. There may be a tipping point that causes customers to seek an off-grid approach. The more customers move to solar, the more the remaining utility customers' bills will rise, creating even further headroom for Tesla's off-grid approach. What make you of that, Bert Green? I think it makes for a good headline. I think that it's going to be a lot slower happening than they're predicting. Um, I don't think that in the in the big market, the, the average consumer standpoint, that they're going to have the investment to to buy that hardware. Because when you talk about the Tesla Powerwall, when you talk about the solar, you know, it's going to be for the most part from the top down. You know, it's going to be a luxury item, and then it's going to be an average mid level consumer Why? item. Why? Why? When you package the the panels together with the battery, and you net present value it forward, and you consider today's really low interest rates. But look what else is going on. We have this increasing disparity between the rich and the poor in this country. And, you know, not to get onto a Bernie Sanders style rant here, but it's, it is different than what it was 30, 40 years ago. The gap is getting higher. And I think that, you know, because of that gap, you know, people that are living in poverty, people that are just trying to, to pay their bills and eat their food, they're not going to set aside ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 to buy a power wall and get solar panels. But a, a an upper middle income, you know, family, yes. regardless of ideology, when Presented with the payback. And again, you know, Will, it looks like seven years was that was that kind of, you know, tipping point thing conversation. Like if you could, you know, I could see the horizon at the end of that. If you could tell me that I'm going to be loving life, it's all gravy after that and I don't pay anything to my utility, I'm game with that. But what makes this interesting now, we really get into Wonkistan with this, is interest rates. Um, you know, you, you embed very minuscule long-term interest rates into the payback period right now. And theoretically, the power bill should be lower because of lower natural gas prices, even though I know there's a ratchet effect that there's, they're kind of sticky upwards. Yeah. Uh, this should And the falling price of solar should make the payback period shorter and shorter and shorter. It should. And I think that's why we're in a really good time and it's just going to continue to get better because the, the manufacturing keeps getting cheaper. The actual price of solar panels keeps going down and then you've got the installation costs. But it's uh, it's absolutely a good time to be investing in solar now with interest rates as low as they are. So I think I think when people can actually see on a piece of paper their annual savings and they can actually see the payback date, I think that's going to make people want to invest. Well, tell us what um, you're seeing on the large scale commercial front. Don't name any clients. Don't you know betray any sure. confidences. But a company coming to you and saying, "Look, I have this kind of property, this kind of roof." Run on the highway, whatever it's getting. Uh, I, I spend this much on my utility bill every month. What is the value proposition for me? How do you back of the envelope it for them? You know, we can give them a couple options. I think most people want to remain tied into the grid. It's just not feasible for most uh, commercial customers to go off the grid completely. So most of most of them are going to want to be uh, net metering. So they're they're still tied to the grid and they're still paying for the difference between the amount of energy that they generate versus how much they use. Let's say in but, theory, what would it cost right now to cover the top of a Costco, a typical well, Costco? Yeah, well, that would, Bert would probably be better at the math than me, but, you know, that might be a, you know, oh, a man. megawatt Guessing, project. Guessing uh, $60,000 to $120,000 just shooting from the hip. Just for the panels on top of Costco. And uh, we, I you would, know. I would, I would guess it might be a little higher than that too, but yeah, it, it would be a significant upfront investment. Do we know what a utility bill at a, at, a, at a facility that size? Again, these are all rough numbers. I'm just trying to get a sense for it. We can do it on a sure. you know, single family house basis. We can do it on a... And I'm thinking about companies that are being pressured by their shareholders actually to, to come up with their own you know, standards. You look at the... not The, the Gigafactory is a whole other thing, but Apple's new spaceship headquarters there. I mean, 
a lot of companies in New York City, they're trying to get super LED certification. They have cisterns. They want solar panels on their roofs. Sponsor of this show, Elwood Thompson's, has solar on their roofs. There's a, you know, um, Shake Shack Burgers makes a commitment to buy renewable energy mm-hmm. as part of its portfolio. And that's why solar is so uh, so great right now is because it's it's uh, it's a way for companies to very clearly say, hey, we're green, we're environmentally conscious, we're concerned about climate change, et cetera. And it's just, um, you know, it's a really sexy way to show that. Whereas you could be saving a lot of energy by investing in energy efficiency, you know. Which is not sexy. I mean, which Jimmy is not Carter, sexy. Jimmy Carter putting on his cardigan and telling you to turn on his thermostat. Exactly. And he exactly. was right. He was right. <laughs> he was so right. What's so frustrating <laughs> is like, you know, all those blocking and tackling things. Like they tell you, you know, if you just make sure your tires are at optimal pressure, optimal tread, the cabin pressure, the oil, um, you know, all these things that people know. People want a big mega solution. They want, I mean, that's part of our national gestalt is kind of put a man on the moon. Do it for me. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and then we're going really off the reservation here is that's why single stream recycling is so big right now. It's not like throw it all in one bin, not just throw it all in all bin. I'm so lazy. You need to do it for me that if you go to a Whole Foods here, which by the way has solar panels on its roofs, they take recyclables and trash together and separate them. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the problem is you're getting out here. And at the, at the opposite end of that is when you're pining for the government to have a national champion in clean tech, a Manhattan Project thing, even with solar having its tipping point moment, it's kind of hard to expect the government to come in and say, yes, solar, you are the national champion. Um, It's not going to be hydrogen. It's not going to be natural gas. There's an enormous natural gas lobby. T. Boone Pickens, the famous billionaire oil man, he was pushing wind Mm -hmm. uh, several years ago, this wind corridor through Texas in the Midwest until it wasn't viable. Let me talk about wind for a second. Yeah. Wind is great. But here's the one problem with wind. Wind works best when it's a really large tower, 100 meters up in the air with really large diameter rotors. It's just the basic physics. If you look at the the return on investment, the cost of the hardware, you need it up in the wind stream. People want to put these little pinwheels on their houses, these Which little things down the there. Needle. They don't move the needle. They don't they don't do anything significant. So one of the reasons why I chose solar, because people you know look at me and they're like, well, why solar mill? Why not windmill? Um, Solar scales very well on a low level. You can put two, three, four panels on your roof. It has the same effect as doing a 100 per per unit, you know, where you can't do wind on a small scale. But we should be looking at wind on a large scale. My point there isn't that wind is bad. It's just that wind is not approachable for you in your backyard. It's not going to work. But wind does work on a utility level, on a municipal level, you know, so we should be doing more wind. Um, we should be looking at all the above. And the one thing that we were touching on in this last thread is the thing that's not sexy, but the thing that's most important is efficiency. You know, LED lighting, insulation, you know, seal the envelope of the building, you know, more efficient air conditioning units. These are things that aren't getting the the PR and publicity of grocery stores that have solar panels on their roof, but they're the things that make the biggest difference in the short term. Uh, you know, what's really interesting is if you go to Israel, um, Pretty much every residence across the country has a hot water heater tank attached to a solar thermal kit. Super effective. Super. I mean, that's the lowest hanging fruit in the world so out low, there. Yeah. It's, it's so. I mean, it's not as high tech as you would think. It's not. That's what's great about it. 
I love but, things that are low tech. But can, okay, low hanging fruit. You talk about making sure your insulation is right and not having drafty windows and. But heating the water takes a lot of energy. But that's a low. That's low hanging fruit that the United States yeah. is not pursued. I mean, no one. I mean, does it cost that much for a house to? Maybe it ends up being five percent or ten percent of their utility bill by installing a solar thermal water heater on their roof. That technology is there. It's been there for fifty years. It's very you mature. never see it in the United States. Yeah, you never see it. We should see more of that. So this is it gets back to a policy question. Um, you you need government out there to kind of more so with than the photovoltaics you. you can work out something with the utilities or with installers to do the photovoltaics. I don't know of any large scale program that's really pushing that for the solar thermal. You know, like you pretty much should have to enlist plumbers because that's a plumbing issue. You know, so I think it's good that you brought it up. Maybe we need to have a, a referendum on doing more solar thermal heating. But I think that there's so much other noise going on out there. I think that would kind of get lost in the issues. Uh, what's fascinating is when I, when I visited Israel for a story on cleantech in Israel in 2008 is they had this this bright source grid in the desert, which is really out of Stanley Kubrick. Um, I know you guys have seen it. Maybe you visited them. You put on these desert boots and go out there and they have these pivoting mirrors that almost worship the sun. They follow it around the circle all day long and point it back at this water tower that's covered in mirrors. And you're taking that heat, you're taking that ray and boiling water and spinning a turbine. This is being used massively in the Southwest. This is being used massively in parts of Spain, in areas of Mongolia where there's desertification uh, going on. And it just brings me back to this one stat. I remember seeing it on an HSBC ad in the New York City subway. If we just covered less than 2% of the Sahara Desert in solar panels, we could power all of Western Europe. Well, the problem is how do you move that power from the Western Sahara, Sahara to Western Europe? And I, I don't know what the, you know, I don't know what the transmission losses from that would be, but that's that's the issue. We got so much solar potential in the southwest of the United States. You can't move that solar power east and there are limitations. Why can't you move it east? I can't tell you exactly how much power you lose over what distance, but you can't you can't transmit power that long of a distance. You just you lose you lose power along the way. You but physically then, can do it. You just don't do it very economically. You start the, the losses that you get from that. It's it just becomes better to have it closer to where you're using sure, it. Sure, but then I mean, this this becomes like you know, you really think you really use your illusion. Florida is very powerful in solar. Uh, uh, the, the coast of Maine might be very powerful with wind if people aren't bothered about the eyesores of putting up really high turbines high up in the water. Geothermal might make sense in the Pacific Northwest, right? The portfolioization nuclear in a, in a smarter way, in a more contained, mm -hmm. smaller pelletized way. And uh, to whatever extent you still needed cleaner burning natural gas, this could be an enormous stride, but it needs government to go there. I mean, consider that the, the, the sexiness of the issue of the grid security was huge in 2003 when we had that blackout in New York and Everybody fingered the Midwest and said, oh, Ohio, but then it completely dissipated. It went away. Nobody talks about the security of the grid right now. Um, this is something that requires the full attention of not just one presidential administration, but several yeah. in succession. Well, you said it requires government. Well, government is the people and it's how you vote. And, you know, we got to hold our policymakers accountable. And, you know, uh, there are some people that continue to cater to the oil lobbies and fossil fuels. And there's other people, they, they're not perfect, that are focusing more on renewables and, you know, things like the Paris Accords and, you know, 
the clean power plan that the Obama administration has w- worked to push forward, which is a very moderate uh, push. Like the timeline that they have at the clean power plan is entirely reasonable, and in fact, in some ways, um, not aggressive enough, in my opinion. You know, it really is kind of the lowest common denominator of what we should be doing. I do want to get a sense from you, Bert. What is the next big hurdle for you from a publicity perspective or kind of proving your concept? And I see in the press that you're saying you're not satisfied to be out there 10 years from now just making... Um, if I'm the only one still doing this. Uh, yeah. I, what's, I, your, what's your motivation in this? It's not a money-making enterprise for you. It's um, it, it, it inconveniences you. <laughs> I mean, it pays the bills, but there are other ways. You're an, you're an engineer. You're in demand. There are other things you can do. Where do you want to take this? As a, You don't want to be a novelty. You don't just want to be that reliable, quirky newspaper story. You have bigger aspirations. Right. So right now we are, we're mostly focusing on making consumer products using our technology, but we are maturing and developing technology that we think will have value for, for other people. Um, control systems, predictive software, weather forecasting. There's there's a whole bunch of things that I'm very interested in that I think can be part of the solution. Um, so I think that you're going to see over the next 10 years that SolarMo is going to increasingly pivot towards being a technology company as we start to mature some of the things that we have identified as being uh, not the low-hanging fruit, but the bottlenecks, you know, the, the real challenges in communication and, you know, energy conversion where it all comes together. And Bert, I'd be interested to know how many people call you on a weekly basis asking you about your business and can I do that with my business? I get tours. People want to – I had a group of 20 teachers for the state Virginia Tech ed, ed conference last week come by and take a look at my shop. I gave them a one-and-a-half-hour tour. I have another group of teachers coming by and a, a week from now. I have a group of legislators coming by in September. People want to come by and see my facility all the time because, you know, we really have built it in a visual way that you can see how the energy is being used. You know, everything is metered. Everything's recorded. Everything's logged. Um, I've got labels and all the machinery that says how much watts it draws when it's running. Um, so people always want to come by and see what we're doing. And I do get a lot of people asking installation style questions. And when, when they ask that, I just point them to any of the servo installers in the area, you know, Segura, Off Grid by Design, um, you know, Kinshaw, you know, there's a number of, of very skilled installers. Well, what in is the area. most badass thing you can manufacture at Solar Mill right now? The most badass thing? Like, gee whiz, wow, how did he do that? I know you can make me an omelet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have to say for anyone listening, my business is not a kitchen. I know. Come on. <laughs> That's I told just you. for lunch. I told you at some point, Bert, I'm going to say something that annoys you. I just you. want you to make sure the uh, the people you, out there listening these, don't think that we are. You made these door stops. Yeah. Right? I mean, the 3D printing with 3D biodegradable printing. plastic. You uh, There were these uh, bamboo wood things you manufactured that I, I make see? cutting boards. I think my nicest product is a cell phone case. Uh-huh. Um, it's It's got the highest level of detail. It's 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 just a gorgeous solid wood um, case for iPhone 5s. We're working on a case for iPhone 6. Um, we're working on some very interesting PR projects. There's a golf cart. We actually have been working with people's carts here in Richmond, and we're building out a golf cart that we're going to put solar panels on the roof of the golf cart. So it's solar-powered transportation. And then in the back of the golf cart, we're going to be mounting uh, smaller pieces of the machinery that we use, like a CNC mill, a 3D printer, a laser engraver. And we're going to be able to take this golf cart around and basically do what the food trucks are doing with food. We're going to be able to do that with manufacturing, where we can go to a festival, we can go to a farmer's market, you know, we can go to schools and colleges, and we can demonstrate and sell the products that we're making and, and show real-time this is what it's like to take sunshine and make it into a viable product. 
you know, and, and this is how we work with the energy that we're giving. But to clarify, if I show up at your campus with waffle batter, would you tase me? No, I would make you a waffle. See? He's a lover, not yeah. a hater. <laughs> yeah. Will, you talk to me. The next big things you guys are looking at as a firm um, – Maybe, maybe talk us on the other side. What is the biggest opportunity for you? I mean, music to your ears right now. The ideal engagement is someone comes to you for X, Y, Z. Tell us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we love to help uh, solar developers, whether it's a individual, a residential customer, small commercial customer, a mom and pop operation. We like to help anybody uh, who wants to install solar of any size. And especially in Virginia, we think there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity for new solar in Virginia. And uh, we've seen a commitment from Dominion. They've committed to doing a lot more solar in the next few years. There are some policy changes in Virginia that are going to encourage Dominion. But uh, we would love to see um, more policy changes that would help drive more solar in Virginia, like policies like they have in North Carolina. You know, like I've mentioned it earlier. They've got a renewable portfolio standard. They've got state tax incentives. What makes North Carolina so distinctive? They have decided that it's good business to encourage renewable energy development in the state of North Carolina. And I think we are slowly moving in that direction in Virginia, but we're a long way behind. I mean, North Carolina, I think they installed a thousand megawatts last year. Virginia, Bert, Bert told me we've got less than 50 megawatts installed solar in Virginia now. So North Carolina is is certainly way ahead of us. But I, I think Virginia, I think we're gonna, uh, I think we're gonna catch up. There's been a lot of progress in the last year. The federal investment tax credit just got extended, so that's a really good thing for for solar developers. Yeah, I think that we need to get the population in Virginia. To, to start seeing Virginia as the potential for being a leader in solar. You know, when you think about Europe and you think about renewable energy, one of the first countries that comes to mind is Germany, and they've actually been killing it when it comes to renewable energy. Virginia is at a lower latitude geographically than Germany. Like, we have as much solar resource as they do. You know, I think that when you're in America, when people think solar, they think, you know, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. You know, they're thinking about all these southwest states that you have to be in, in a desert area with perfect clear skies closer to the equator. And I just want to blow that myth out the water. We have more than enough of the resources available here for us to be an absolute leader. And not only that, the as I've learned firsthand, there's still a lot of technology yet to be developed with solar. And I'm not talking about the panels. I'm not talking about the charge controllers or the wiring. I'm talking about all the, the ways that solar is actually can be implemented that can be used to make a product or used to enhance our lifestyles. There's so much research and development that is yet to be done. Uh, I want Virginia to be a leader in that. Uh, finally, I do want to get a sense because you have to stress test this and, and look at it with cold eyes is what if oil prices continue their collapse? People forget, but in 1998, they hit $10 a barrel. There was emerging market contagion. Suppose That's great, China but for how collapses. Long? For how long? I well, mean, we the, know the, it's going to run out. But my problem with that is, is it, it tends to derail alternative energy projects. What What is unprecedented is the velocity with which it happened this time did not derail solar. What's most outstanding to me, what's most surprising is that Clean tech, broadly, clean energy still has its groove. I mean, even the shale producers, they were not you know, expected to, to be able to sustain through $50 oil or $40 oil. They're still at it. Um, are you guys kind of worried about an oil shock in reverse? 
No, I think we can. I think we can separate somewhat uh, oil prices from electricity prices. There's only uh, oil. There are some oil-powered electricity facilities, but that's a very per- small percentage of uh, where we get our power from. So I, I think electricity prices are going to be somewhat independent from oil prices. But we've also got. I mean, it's a reality that whether it's uh, coal or natural gas or oil, if a fossil fuel is being used to produce energy, it's producing carbon dioxide, which uh, our country has decided through the passage of the federal clean power plan that it's a national priority to reduce CO2 emissions. So as long as that policy remains in place and isn't thrown out by the Supreme Court or uh, thrown out by a President Trump, we're going to be moving in the direction of more renewable energy, more energy efficiency, and we're going to be placing priority on reducing carbon dioxide emissions. So as long as that federal policy is in place, that's going to drive business at the state and local level. It's going to encourage more businesses to invest more in renewable energy like solar. And you also have to look at it from the perspective of the oil producers. Um, they're close to selling it at a loss. They're not making a lot of profit right now. That's not going to be a trend that's going to continue for long because they're going to want to find their equilibrium for what they can charge for the product. And um, it's not entirely a free market when you have a, a large organization like OPEC that that is basically setting the price. And, and right now, they're not making the money that they really want to be making. You know, like they were making historic profits in the 90s and early thousands. They're going to want to get back to that as quickly as possible. And when they do, I think that we're going to continue to see the trend towards renewables. Bert Green, Will Reisinger. It's always sunny in RVA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are on NPR One, iTunes, WRIR, ACAST, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Again, for the 50th time, Spotify. Show me some lovin'. Somebody translate that into Swedish. And holler if you're interested in sponsoring this fine show. I am on uh, Tinder and Grinder or wherever else you want to find me. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. I'll see you.